You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Washington is unique. The opportunity for students is amazing. I wanted to be around that level of excellence. I have a passion for service. Learn more and apply at wasm.education. That's W-A-U-S-M dot education. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, with me, your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. So, there is less of chatty going on today because we are running straight into part two of Lizzie Borden, the axe murderer. Murderess? Murderer? Murderess. Both. Both are fine. Both are acceptable. This is part two in a series. I know I usually don't do two-parters, but there was just so much information. We had no choice but to add more. So, if you haven't already listened to part one, go back, listen to that. And then come back here, because I am going to skip the jibber-jabber and just fact you. So, we recap, probably best. Lizzie and her sister Emma are in their 30s. They're still living at home with their father. They have gone way past spinster and are now into level Thornback. Which, let's face it, much cooler name. There have been disagreements over the years in the Borden household, mainly due to the fact that Andrew Jackson Borden, their father, is hella rich, but still doesn't have, you know, plumbing or heating in the house, which seems like kind of a necessity, one could argue. And of course, there's the fact that instead of ensuring that they had better lives, what he did was buy his sister-in-law a house, which kind of arced the girls a wee bit. When all the girls wanted to do was move away from the industrial sort of area that they were in and live a luxurious life up on the hill. Also, in addition, furthermore, Andrew's second wife, who he'd been married to for like 30 odd years, Abby, who just so happens to be the only person in the household who calls their maid by her actual name because apparently she's the only one who bothered to learn it. In this little mixed family, there were problems bubbling and they rose to the surface, big disagreements were had, and the girls had to go on a wee break for reasons that we don't actually have. They go away, Lizzie comes back, and the family start getting sick. Their maternal uncle, biological maternal uncle John, he comes to visit, 
doing some businessy stuff with Andrew. And then the whole household mysteriously starts getting sick. And this is where we left off. The next day, Andrew, the uncle, Abby and Bridget, the maid, all eat mutton for breakfast. Why? Oh, you know, we think we're being poisoned and we've all been sick after eating this. Let's have more. On a scale of zero to invading Russia in the winter, I feel like eating day-old unrefrigerated meat on one of the warmest days of the year, considering that you believe you are being poisoned, probably is like a midway point. So after breakfast, Andrew and John, they retire to the sitting room and they're getting ready for the day. Abby starts doing all like the daily chores and Bridget goes into the garden to puke because there's nowhere else to go. There's not a kitchen sink. Where, where, are you, where are you gonna chuck up? Like, you know what I mean? So John Morse leaves. Lizzie gets up and has like a light breakfast of cookies and tea. I would call them biscuits, but like in America they're cookies. So she has like this really light breakfast. Cause you know, she doesn't want to eat day old mutton for breakfast. So while Lizzie's having her breakfast, Andrew heads off to start his day. You know, he's gonna do business stuff, but he's also gonna post some mail, including letters that Lizzie gave him for him to post for her. I mean, he's on his way anyway, may as well. After Andrew leaves, Abby asks Bridget to go clean some windows. Bridget, who is, you know, quite literally throwing up in their garden, is like, okay, I mean, it's incredibly hot and I've just spent half the morning chucking up into the petunias, but fine, of course I'll clean the windows. Absolutely. So, Bridget is outside washing windows and Lizzie, she's apparently ironing napkins because that's a thing people do and Abby goes up to clean the guest bedroom which is where Uncle John, John Morris is staying. Now cleaning the guest room that was usually like Lizzie and Emma's job but one, Emma's not fucking there and Lizzie, maybe she thought Lizzie was too sick to do it, him's to say, but she's up there and as Abby is cleaning that guest room she gets axed. She takes a hatchet to the neck and head 19 times. She gets a proper whack. So Abby is facing her killer at the time of the attack. The manner in which she's hit, like it's quite possible she was on her knees. She gets whacked right on the side of the head with a hatchet, getting her like just above the ear. And as she falls, the killer just keeps like whacking her, getting her in the head and neck. So Andrew, he comes back from his morning walk between like half 10, 11. He goes to put his key in the front door, but the door's locked, isn't it? Because ever since the burglary, they've been keeping the doors locked. So he shouts for, for Maggie, Bridget Sullivan. So she goes in and she unlocks the door. And as she's doing that, she she swears, she curses. And whatever, whatever shit she said, it made Lizzie laugh. And Maggie, Bridget Sullivan, the maid, and Sullivan, she testified that like Lizzie was at the top of the stairs when she'd had this like muffled laugh. So yeah, Andrew Jackson Borden, he is back from his morning walk. And he decides he's gonna take a wee nap on the couch. It's been a busy day. He's not feeling well. He's gonna have a wee he's gonna have a wee lounge on the long. Lizzie says that at this point she goes out to the barn to look for fishing weights. 
even though she hasn't gone fishing in like several years. But yeah, now is the day she decides she needs fishing weights. So off she pops, and while she goes out, Bridget Sullivan the maid, she heads up to bed. She's gonna go in her like top floor attic servants quarters place. Cause she's like, fuck this for a game of soldiers. I'm gonna have a lie down. Cause it's hot, she feels like shit, and she just wants to sleep it off. Plus, you know, Andrew Borden is napping. She can nap too. Why not? Live your best life. So off she goes. And so while Andrew is having his nap, having a wee nap on the couch, plus he's in his 60s, you know, all people sleep more. They just do. Like cats. And while he's trying to catch his 40 winks, he gets an axe to the face. Attacked with a hatchet. And he's struck like 10 or 11 times in total. His face is fucking annihilated. There's a lot of rage. Whoever did this wasn't holding back but by waiting for him to be like dozing this was definitely the work of someone who did not want him fighting back and also wanted to pulverize his whole fucking face into nothingness so just after 11 bridget she's upstairs having a nap lizzie shouts for her she's shouting for maggie she's like come quick father's dead somebody came in and killed him and the maid's like okay fuck that's not good so first things first, she sends her across the street to Dr. Bowen, you know, the, the family doctor. But he's not there. Because he's not there, Lizzie tells her to go get a friend from down the street. Which is kind of weird to me, because like... Which is, you know, you could understand someone being panicked, but there's a fucking doctor that lives next door to her. Like, there's an Irish immigrant doctor next door. And there was a French-Canadian doctor just like, round the back as well. So there were, there were other doctors really fucking close. And she's like, nope, keep going to this other person. Like, ignore these guys. Eventually, they do manage to get, like, Dr. Bowen. And somehow, someone does manage to actually inform the police this happened. And so, the first thing they do is send one officer. <sighs> Listen, I understand not having, like, a fully-fledged, like, police force that's used to dealing with murders and shit. Like, they're probably dealing with, like, town drunks and missing cats and burglaries and the like. You know, smaller, smaller crimes. But they send one guy. And at this point, and he's, like, trying to talk to Lizzie. But Lizzie is on drugs. Her doctor has doped her the fuck up. Like, she is on morphine. So much morphine. So, Dr. Bowen, in his infinite wisdom, he decided that, you know, he needed to calm Lizzie's nerves. And instead of using, like, a sedative, he's like, morphine is definitely the way to do it. Morphine. So, <laughs> Lizzie is on morphine and she's being interviewed by Deputy Marshal Fleet. And he's like, right, okay, here's your dad. There's the maid. There's you. Your sister's away. Where's Mrs. Borden? Like, where's your mother? And... Lizzie's response, I swear to God, not exactly an inconspicuous one, was she's not my mother, she's my stepmother. Like, like she corrects him, like, straight away. But she tells him, oh, well, she's not here. She got a note from a sick friend, so she had to go visit her. She's not here. Don't worry about it. But then her story changes, and she's like, oh, wait, no. She came back, so she should be here. So then he's like, maybe we should go look for her? And so they, they start spreading out and they go looking for, you know, Mrs. Borden. And as Bridget is going up the stairs, once she gets to a certain stair, she screams 
because she sees the body of Abby Borden. The way that this works, so like they, they actually tested this out with like a bunch of detectives and stuff at one point. There was like one step on like the whole staircase that you could see a body lying on the guest room floor. And like granted they did do it with um somebody who was like a few inches to a foot taller than Abby, but that's neither here nor there. So like from this one particular spot, you could see like the body. But like only from this one step, depending on well, depending on your height. From Bridget's height, you could see it from this one step. Like from another like taller person it would have been the step below. You know, like that sort of way. Just because of the way this weird layout worked because all the rooms kind of interconnected so like a telegram gets sent out to you know notify emma of what's going on so they find the bodies and they're like okay what are we gonna do they decide to get the doctors to perform post-mortems on the dining room table and they do this autopsy and they determine that because abby's blood is more like coagulated than Andrew's. Now, if you listened to the Elizabeth Bathory episode, you would know that blood coagulates pretty quickly. Like, so it would be more stickier and gloopier and harder than, say, Andrew's. Especially when, like, the day is so hot. So that's one of the reasons why they were able to determine that Abby was definitely killed before Andrew. Because of coagulation. Science! So I was looking at the crime scene photos, um, which is something no reasonable sane person should do. Like, it's not good for you to do that. Like, don't do that. What I found pretty interesting is, like, you'd think that being axed in the head, like, multiple trauma wounds, would be very bloody. There's not a lot of blood at the scene of the crime. Like, there's a bit, obviously, but there's not a lot of spatter. So anyway, a telegram is sent out for Emma and she comes back. Oh yeah, it's like there were a fuck ton of people coming in and out of this house. Like right away, like neighbours are coming in and they're like tidying up and getting stuff ready and like cleaning. There are neighbours coming in to help clean up the blood. Which nowadays is like, ah! But back then, it's not as if they had like the forensics to deal with it anyway. Mr and Mrs Borden, their, you know, autopsied corpses are in the house on the dining room table and Emma and Lizzie stay in the house like they sleep there I think Lizzie's friend comes and stays with them as well her friend Alice comes over but like what the actual fuck oh yeah I'm just gonna have a nap here next to the mutilated corpses of my father and stepmother what is that not ringing any alarm bells for anybody I don't seem fucking weird no Anyway, back to back to the investigation. So the police officers, they're going around the house and they're looking for stuff. And Lizzie like points out like a hatchet in the barn. And there's like this little hatchet and it's covered in ash, like it's dirty, and the handle is broken. And the police are like, Yep, this seems like the murder weapon. Like they think that it was used, it was cleaned, and then it was like put in ash to dry it or cover up blood or something. So, Alice Russell, she comes and stays with the two sisters in the house. And John Morse, he's staying there too. He's still there. He decides not to stay in the guest room, which is, you know, valid. Um, But he doesn't, like, go to any of the other rooms either. Like, he could have had the master bedroom. 
Like apparently he was sleeping in the guest room in the attic, but like I couldn't see a guest room in the attic. I thought it was just the maid's room, but um, apparently he was up there. So the next day, everybody's like going in and out of the house. Like there's police, there's neighbors, so on and so forth. It's like the police are searching the house and they find this. They call it a slop pail. And it's basically this bucket with bloody rags in it, right? And they're like, Lizzie, what is this? And she has to explain to these old stuffy fucking Victorian men that they're her menstruation rags. So yeah, they find the hatchet. So they do like this big thing and like everyone and their granny has been in and out of this house. So they find the hatchet. Later on that day, the mayor of Fall River visits Lizzie and is like, hey, just so you know, you're the main suspect, which I'm sure was super fun. The next day, Alice sees Lizzie burn this blue corduroy dress and she's like, that's weird. That's suspicious. Nobody knows if Lizzie was wearing that kind of dress that day. So anyway, there's this inquest and she is on all of the drugs. And so they have this inquest and she's questioned and she's on all this morphine and everything she says basically contradicts with itself and she didn't answer questions properly even if answering them would have been better for her she was like everything from like when her father returned home like what were you doing i was reading a magazine wait no i was i was ironing or no i wasn't ironing i was actually coming down the stairs like like she said that she helped her father take off his boots and put his slippers on so he could nap but like he still had his boots on when he was sleeping. So basically, after this inquest, Lizzie is arrested and is sent to this prison eight miles north because there's no there's no ladies' prison in Falls River. There isn't one. So she gets sent up to this other prison. And like she is found guilty of three counts of murder. One, the murder of Andrew Jackson Borden, two, Abby Borden, and three, Abby and Andrew together. Like they, they I don't know why, but like that's a thing. So yeah, she ends up in this jail in Taunton because there's there's no women's prison in Fall River, so she's she's up there. So Lizzie's arrest, it basically ignites this whole fucking moment. Like like a national moment. So like women's groups like all over the country, they start rallying for for Lizzie. Cause they're like, this is a good Christian woman. She's of high society. Like, even the Falls River, like, people from the hill, they're like, you can't do this to our girl. She's one of us. She wouldn't do that. The suffrage movement got behind her as well because they argued that she didn't have a jury of her peers because, obviously, the entire jury is men. So, if there were no women on the jury, she definitely couldn't have a jury of her peers. So, in 1893, because of just all of this noise that's being made, there's a new trial, you know? Because you've got all of these sort of women's movement and women's leagues kind of involved, but you still also have the idea that a respectable woman would not be capable of doing something so egregious and aggressive and vile, you know? There's another trial. Emma, who, because Lizzie has been jailed, because she's been tried for murder, Emma is the sole beneficiary to, like, the Borden fortune, or Andrew's fortune, because Lizzie's been jailed. And she uses this money to get the best fucking lawyer money can buy. He is like the Billy Flynn of lawyers. Give him the old razzle-dazzle, razzle-dazzle him. And he decides to have Lizzie appear in court. Very demure. It is 
at this point it's like high art you know he has her in very expensive very beautiful black clothing because she's in mourning he has her show up with like mourning flowers also during this time period flowers are really important like it's very much a thing so she's got her mourning flowers you know there's a point during the trial where they they show like the skulls of andrew and abby and when they are he like dramatically chucks them up on a table and opens it up lizzie she ah oh, promptly faints and this is like a massive like spectacle because the reason the skulls are there is they were checking the size of the hatchet to the size of the winds so there was a reason for the skulls to be there but it all leaned into this whole like drama of the trial so at this trial as well lizzie does not like testify not at all not in her defense none of that and the judge rules that her initial testimony from her initial like inquest is not admissible another thing they don't allow is a local pharmacist had like come forward and said um i didn't think it was like odd at the time but then afterwards i thought bit weird that lizzie had tried to buy prussic acid which is like very poisonous and you need a prescription for that and like her reason for buying it was like i need it to clean this seal skin cape i do it all the time even though like that's not what it's used for but like that's deemed as admissible because they weren't poisoned so there was no reason to have any mention of poison and they bring up like alice russell noticing like the dress being burned and emma and the dressmaker like state like that was just a thing they did they both like attest to this like oh yeah we just burn dresses when they're when they're no good because there was paint on it so we had to do that and so like all these other suspects are like brought forward and stuff like including like uncle john What's weird about this trial as well is they don't try and, like, blame anybody else. Like, there was an underlying tone of maybe an immigrant came in and killed them. Because there was another, like, hatchet job, I think, a few days before the trial had happened. And because it was a Portuguese immigrant who, like, committed the crime, and the crimes were eerily similar to the Borden murders, that it was, like, brought up again, even though this person wasn't even in Fall River at the time of the Borden murders. But anyway... Like, Lizzie's defence, they don't try and provide any other suspects. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Emma was away at her friends. Uncle John Morse, he had like the weirdest but very airtight alibi because he went to visit relatives. The relatives were like, well, he was here, but he was able to like remember the streetcar number he was on 
because of the number on the streetcar driver's hat. And the reason he remembers this particular streetcar is because there were five priests on it. I don't know how difficult it is to ensure something so peculiar happens. And like the streetcar driver remembers the priest, but he doesn't remember John. <laughs> a wee shame. It's a wee shame for John. But anyway, this is like a massive, massive thing. And, and, and it's a huge, just fucking sensationalist drama. And Lizzie is painted as very much the demure lady, high society lady who would never hurt. She's incapable of murdering. On the 20th of June, 1893, trial is over and the jury have to go deliberate. The judge sort of ends the the session, the trial, with, um, he does this like big speech and he basically tells the jury, I'm not telling you to say she's not guilty, but you know. So he didn't exactly tell them to, you know, say not guilty, but he told them to say not guilty. So anyway, they go off, the jury, they chat for an hour and a half and come back. And I think most of that is just paperwork. Like, <laughs> they just go in, smoked some pipes while they waited. And, you know, just to make it seem like they took more effort than they did. Come back out and they're like, and, you know, like, there's not guilty. The courtroom erupts into, like, applauds and cheers. And, like, Lizzie's like, I'm the happiest woman in the world. And after this, so Lizzie and Emma, they return to Fall River. And all of the support that she had from, like, the high society folks, once she's back home, that support kind of just, like, trickles away. So Emma and Lizzie, they move into this massive, gorgeous new house in Fall River, up on the hill, and Lizzie names it Maplecroft, which, like, most people didn't name their houses back then, but she was like, fuck it, fuck this for a game of soldiers, I'm naming my house. They have everything, they've got maids, housekeepers, coachmen, the whole shebang, and when Lizzie moves in, she changes her name from Lizzie Andrew Borden to Lisbeth A. Borden. I mean, it's not a massive change, but you do you. The Borden sisters, they're just, like, living their best lives, and Lizzie more so than Emma. So while Emma was just happy to just kind of chill out and exist, Lizzie was out hanging out with, like, actors and shit who were not seen as, like, nowadays, like, actors are, like, a big deal. They're, you know, they're the stars. Back then... They were sort of very low class. They performed for you. They served you. It was kind of seedy to hang out with actors, people of the stage. And so, like, Emma does not like these these actor people. And Lizzie ends up having this party in 1905 for this actress, Nance O'Neill, who was very much latched on to Lizzie, or Lizzie latched on to her, him to say. And after this party, Emma is like, I'm done, I'm off. And she just leaves. She moves out and the two sisters never see each other again. Now, as Lizzie, she stays in Fall River and she becomes this kind of urban legend. Like, children sing rhymes about her. She's, like, openly mocked. And, like, when she goes to church, when she goes to her normal seat in church, no one else sits around her. It's like when you put a magnet down. And it repels all the other stuff. Like, that's what she's like. It's like, no one's around her. By 1927, Lizzie is ill as fuck. And she ends up getting her gallbladder removed. Any any surgery someone had to have pre-1960 is always going to be 
it's always going to end poorly. I don't care who you are, there's always a bad side effect to it. So after getting her gallbladder removed, she's really fucking sick. And she ends up dying of pneumonia on June 1st, 1927. And what's weird is like nine days later, nine days later, Emma Borden passes away from chronic nephritis in a nursing home in New Hampshire. And both sisters were buried side by side in the family plot in the Oak Grove Cemetery in Fall River. So like in her will, Lizzie Borden was worth $250,000, which is worth over $5 million today. And because she owned like properties and had shares and utilities and stuff like that, because she owned like properties, like from rentals to like commercial places, and had shares in utilities, had loads of jewellery, like because she had all that, she was she was really well off, and she ends up leaving like in today's money like six hundred grand to an animal rescue league, and then like another ten grand to like ensure that her father's grave is like maintained. And like her closest friend and relative ends up with 125 grand and then like the rest of her relatives can end up with somewhere between 20 to 100 grand like it's all just spread out to everybody like just take the money so like over the years a bunch of theories have come out as to like why lizzie did it i'm convinced lizzie did it like the timeline makes sense you know but like the question is why like was she greedy did she just want money or was there like something like darker afoot? Here's the thing, with any sort of scandal, any sort of massive event that happens in a, a close-knit town like this, especially when it becomes national news, there is always going to be a why. Why did she do this? Why did someone do this? Why were these two elderly people hacked to death with a wee axe? It's a natural question. We always want to know why somebody did a thing or why a thing happened. We always want to look for reasons and justifications, but sometimes there isn't one. So there are theories of why Lizzie did it. And it goes from one end of the spectrum to the other. Plus, you know, we are kind of hung up on motive as, you know, a general rule of thumb. But like, I firmly believe that Lizzie did it, but that Emma is the mastermind behind it. Because Lizzie was always trying, you know, she was trying to be social, she was trying to have friends, she was trying to go on adventures, like she was constantly reaching out for something, but nothing was really coming back for her. And the only constant, the only love and affection she really got in her life was from her big sister, who was effectively a surrogate parent for her. And as far as we know, Emma didn't really look for anything else until Lizzie actually found a group of friends that weren't within the right social class, but she found people to connect with, to spend time with. And she had parties, whether it was because she wanted to have parties or because she was so desperate to be cared for and to be wanted. We don't know. Hims to say. But, which I think is one of the more reasonable theories, you know, after years and years of just constantly being an afterthought for not being given the life that they felt they deserved, the sisters ensured they got the lives they deserved. Or that they believe they deserved. Also, from here on in, the theories are going to get just a wee bit wackier. Of course, there's the rumour that Emma and or Lizzie had a suitor 
whom their father deemed uh, less than worthy of his daughter's hand, and as such, the only way for them to be together was to get rid of him. That also plays into the idea of why Emma didn't return, because she was with her lover and not her family, because she was with her lover at the time of the murders. Hmm, interesting. And it only gets more salacious from here, because the rumour mill keeps churning, and at one point, Lizzie is whatever the female equivalent of balls deep is, in a sea of men. Like, Lizzie was out there shagging this fella, fucking that fella, blowing the other dude, like she was getting her goods. The woman was swimming in a sea of penises, like, alright. Which brings us, of course, to the uncle theory. The bones of it is, Lizzie is embroiled in an incestuous affair with her uncle, and as such, they plot the demise of the elderly Bordens together so that they can get them out of the way and seize their fortune. Uncle John manipulated Lizzie into murdering both her father and her stepmother. And it was his idea to make sure that Abby got killed first to ensure that the Borden daughters would receive the full inheritance and not Abby's family. Which branches off into the uncle with a suspiciously specific and airtight alibi. Lots of people find it weird that he happened to remember the number on the hat of the streetcar driver who happened to be carrying five priests. But like for all we know the dude could have been like super into streetcars, I'm just saying. Or he could have been on the spectrum and one of his things was remembering numbers and stuff. Him's to say. So he has this oddly ironclad alibi, but instead of being with family, which he said, he was in fact murdering the Borden for like money. Like there's all these theories that Lizzie and Bridget were in on it together. Lizzie was secretly a lesbian and she was caught by Abby doing the horizontal tango with the maid. And the way this little theory goes is that Bridget was not in fact going outside washing windows but instead she was uh canoodling abby walked in on this scene with lizzie and bridget together canoodling snuggling stooping knocking boots so on and so forth and the discovery of such a scandalous scene well and it's the reason that lizzie and or bridget grabbed a hatchet and attacked abby and there's like another theory that says that, you know, she was out banging her way through Fall River and she just wanted her freedom at that point, driven by the power of lust and stuff. She wanted the money and so she killed everybody. And then you have the incest theory that Andrew Borden abused his girls, especially Lizzie. And, you know, this was her retaliation. Abuse comes in many forms. Now, whether he was physically assaulting them or whether this was just sort of a continued emotional destruction or perhaps even financial abuse, which still even right now isn't understood to a great extent. Like, I think there's, there definitely feels like there's something there. I'm not discounting greed by any, any means, but it definitely feels like there's something more sinister underlying. Of course, mental illness has to have a seat at the table. And it's been argued that maybe Lizzie was in some sort of fugue state and she went and just killed them, but didn't realise she was doing it. Or that she was perhaps schizophrenic and she had an episode 
But it's weird that it wouldn't happen before or after. Like, there was no... Like, to our knowledge, she never attacked or assaulted anyone before or after the incident. Now that we've covered that, of course, some people thought it was demons. Demons? Demons. Possession. The occult. Spooky spirits. Wiggly woos. Lizzie was possessed by an evil spirit. Or even a demon who forced her to slaughter her family against her will. But not the maid, because... Because the spirits are part of the proletariat. They're, like, super happy to kill off the wealthy people. But not the maid. She's a working class. We're going to leave her alone. Even demons have rules sometimes. Last but not least, pure, unadulterated greed. Lizzie wanted the finer things in life. She wanted to live the high life that she should have. She should have been born with a silver spoon in her mouth, but her father always kept it just out of arm's reach. She was sick of waiting. She wanted her money, and she wanted it now. However, there's always the possibility that Lizzie is but a red herring, and the real murder was committed by someone else. Either... Uncle John, Emma, or a quote-unquote suspicious-looking man hanging outside the boarding house. It's almost as if they lived at the bottom of the hill in a neighbourhood full of immigrant workers near textile factories and places of work and other areas of commerce and that people, as a general rule, tend to be around. Either way, I am absolutely convinced that Lizzie Borden did commit those murders. Whether she had an accomplice or whether she was pushed into it one way or the other or if it was her own idea. We don't know. We don't. And so, in a sea of ambiguity, thus ends the story of Lizzie Borden. So, what did we learn today? We learned that if you were rich enough, You can get away with murder. I mean, we already knew that, basically. We learned that sisters are, in fact, doing it for themselves. And that, quite probably, Andrew Jackson Borden had it coming. He had it coming. He only had himself to blame. And if you liked today's episode, feel free to rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I love your reviews so much. I read every single one of them. Like, every single one. So I actually have started the website. So I think I might just like screenshot and put up my favourites. I haven't decided yet. Like I'm so tempted to like take my favourites and post them on the website. Because here's the thing. You are fucking fantastic. All of you. You're amazing. And and I am so happy that you keep coming back. Listening week after week. Or um, <clears throat> um after a th- almost three week hiatus. Because of my health issues. But... Really, it means a lot. But I'm really happy that you are still here. Or if you're new, welcome! Hi! Now, of course, if you want to get more of this history stuff, you can follow me on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. Who did what now pod on everything, apart from Twitter, where I'm who did what now PD, because there weren't enough characters. Oh, goodness, recommendation time. Watching. I am going to recommend that you watch Obi-Wan Kenobi because 
It's so good. Also, I'm a big Star Wars fan and it gives me an excuse to go, hello there. That's fucking Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> I love it. Oh no, I actually started reading The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo and it is just, <gasps> go read it, go read it, go read it, go read it. And listening. I actually listened to this podcast and I found it very interesting. I was listening to American Hostage with John Hamm. It's sort of like, I don't know, like a radio series, like a podcast series, a radio play type thing. Ah, it's so good. It's so good. I I really, really enjoyed that one. I really enjoyed it because it's like historical, but it's also like a wee dramatisation. I was listening to it as I looked at the whole world. I was putting this uh, basically world map decal on my kid's bedroom wall and I like to listen to stuff when I'm doing physical things. It just makes me feel better or it makes me work better either way. So I was doing that. So those are your recommendations this week. And with that, I shall bid you adieu. Adios, au revoir, avoid as my friends. Uh, bye-bye. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.